remember locking eyes with this woman across the bar, you know, she had a denim jacket on, this like undercut, really cool looking person. And she like waltzed over to me with a beer and sat down in front of me and introduced herself. She said, I'm Indigo Hansen. Do you want to play rugby? And I was like, wait a second, like what? I don't understand this. From thereabouts, I'm Abby Levine, and this is Outspoken. As athletes, we tend to view sport through a lens of empowerment. The road, track, or pitch is a platform on which to prove to ourselves that we can do hard things. It's a place where we get to taste the highest highs and learn from the lowest lows. And it's a hub for finding friends and purpose during our fleeting time on Earth. What happens then when sport is stripped away? I'm Grace McKenzie, 26 years old. I live in San Francisco, California, but I actually grew up in Canada originally, Niagara Falls. I'm a lifelong athlete. Her story is a bit different from us endurance junkies tripping over our shoelaces. You know, since I was three years old, mainstays when I was growing up were soccer and basketball. But most recently, I've been a rugby player here in San Francisco for the San Francisco Golden Gate Women's Rugby Club. Yes, today we're talking about rugby. And before you turn this off, I promise there's a reason we're veering from our endurance bubble. Ultimately, this story is about more than rugby. This story is about power. The power of sport to serve as a sanctuary, even to save us. And also the power of sport to control people's lives and to sway the way entire societies think. You see, on October 9th, 2020, World Rugby banned an entire classification of women from competing on the international level. They banned trans women. And they are the first international governing body to send the message that certain people are not welcome in their sport. And I'm a trans woman. I'm sure that's relevant to the story. (laughs) To understand this power struggle and why it matters, we need to rewind a little bit. Niagara Falls is an unusual place, with the roaring water cascading into a billow of spray on one side and the kitschy carnival of downtown on the other. Yet, Grace's childhood was pretty typical. She got into sports, and like a lot of young kids, it was thanks to her parents. You know, they wanted me to be involved in some sort of team environment and something to stay active and fit, and it just so happened that sports were the avenue for that. My father was an athlete throughout his childhood and you know, into college. Um, he was like a, a football and basketball player. So that sort of fit in there. I think, you know, part of that like vicarious parent living through their child kind of thing. From soccer to basketball to hockey, Grace tried a lot of sports. She even gave American football a go. I was terrified because all of the other kids had hit puberty before I did. So it's this like tiny little runt, like getting chased down by these massive full grown men. Despite that rather scary quarter of a season, sport provided a safe haven for Grace, especially after her parents split up when she was about 10. Sports for me was just an opportunity to really expand my horizons, try new things, meet new friends, and it was just always there, so um, I was really thankful for it. Plus, sport provided an outlet from her inner turmoil. Niagara Falls is a relatively conservative town for Canada. It's 84% Christian and overwhelmingly Catholic. I was in the Catholic school system. There's not a lot of space for exploration of queer identity, at least there wasn't when I was going through that system. So for me, you know, I felt what I now know as gender dysphoria since I was like three years old. Some of my earliest memories, you know, consisted of like seeing things that my sister got to do or like, you know, female identified friends of mine at school and like feeling this sort of envy or this like 
upset, uh, upsetness, this like um, frustration that I wasn't able to participate in that or, or sort of be involved. Um, I didn't know what those feelings were for the majority of my upbringing and my adolescence. And all I really knew from the teachings of the church and, and the sort of upbringing I had was that they weren't normal feelings. They weren't like acceptable feelings. The things that you make up in your head about it, like what is wrong with me? Like, is this some like, like something wrong with my personality or like, why do I feel this way? I just want these feelings to go away. And, you know, it, it definitely contributed to like, I think struggles with mental illness and, and mental health when I was younger, like depression and unfortunately like suicidal ideation, those sorts of things, which are really common for queer and trans youth. But, you know, you just kind of, buckle down and look for other outlets to like get away from those thoughts and I think sport for me was definitely one of those it allowed me to like distract myself and challenge myself and just avoid thinking about those things uh that's what I did like for the first 23 years of my life like I carried those alone I didn't talk to anybody about them they were really like a solitary secret of mine as Grace subconsciously struggled with what she now recognizes as gender dysphoria and feeling uncomfortable in her own skin Sport also gave her a place to project masculinity. Like an actor walking onto the stage, the pitch provided a place to perform the gender she was assigned at birth. But if you've ever pretended to be someone you're not, you know how lonely and isolating it can be. I definitely did as a young person who was presenting as male to try and like fit into that identity more so than probably I was comfortable with and trying my hand at all of these sports and being in like male sporting environments was definitely part of that. For me, my gender dysphoria is like most prominent around social things. So like not being socially affirmed in my gender is what, what really was harmful to me as a young person. So I remember like acutely seeing my sister when she went into like ice sports, being able to play ringette, which is like a girl's sport in Canada. And like my choice was hockey. I'd have to go into hockey and be in that locker room in that environment. And, you know, there was a part of me that like wished that wasn't the case and that I had access to something that felt more natural. For those non-Canadians wondering, ringette is a team sport played on ice with skates and sticks. In other words, it's a lot like hockey. It's just a little bit more technique-oriented and a lot less contact-heavy. It's also just one example of how sport embeds and projects cultural beliefs into its very framework. After high school, Grace headed west across Canada to attend the University of British Columbia. There, she picked up Ultimate Frisbee, and, like many college freshmen desperate to belong, she joined a fraternity. Obviously, in retrospect, like, that was me trying to, like, reach into that side of my identity and just affiliate with it more. And at the end of the day, those are all things you do to kind of, like, repress and hide who you actually are. And those identities actually made me feel, like, more isolated and more alone and more trapped because I saw these people who were, like, living their truth and I, you know, was thinking to myself, like, that can never be me. Like, nobody can ever know this about me. Some transgender folks experience what the trans community calls an egg hatching or an awakening to who they really are. Grace did not. I saw people who were more expansive and who were talking about these ideas. And if anything, I was almost resentful of the fact that like people could be so comfortable and so authentic and so out there. And I was still stuck with the secret that I couldn't share with other people. Coming to terms with herself and society, that her gender identity didn't perfectly align with her sex that she was assigned at birth, felt like too high of a price to pay. The tipping point, though, came on Grace's favorite holiday, Halloween. 
she and her girlfriend went to a party. We decided to go out as like a gender-swapped Mario and Princess Peach. And it was something that was like super important to me because Halloween was one of those days, pretty much the only day per year, where I was like able to express myself and explore my gender identity. So I remember we came home from a party I was fairly intoxicated and I broke down to her and I sort of expressed for the first time to another person that like I have these feelings I don't know what they mean they're really scary I don't have anybody else to talk to and from that point for a couple of months like it was all I wanted to talk to my partner about it was like this deluge like the floodgates had broken right and it got to the point where she basically said hey I really want to support you in this I can't be the only one who's like holding this space for you Grace still felt confused about who she was. Grace began working with a therapist. It wasn't a smooth road, though. She started experiencing depression. The end was nowhere in sight, and she left therapy. But sometimes, usually when you're least expecting it, the universe reaches out a hand. I had just been, like, reading something about... It was like trans literature or something online about a transgender individual. And for whatever reason, this like article that I read just clicked something in my head. And I remember I was like sitting in my living room on my computer reading this article and like something just happened. This like cascade happened where I was like, oh, what they wrote completely relates to my experience 100%. And this person is a trans woman. And I like connected the dots and then things fell into place for me. I started like thinking about how I would come out to like my family and my friends, you know, how I would get like the medical treatments necessary I needed to to sort of begin my transition. And I remember after making all these decisions and like doing all this research, I sat my girlfriend down in our living room and I said, hey, I have to tell you this thing. You know, I came out to her and sort of explained the situation. She was really upset and confused, but like she understood. You know, she affirmed that she wanted to stick by me through this and she supported all the decisions that I wanted to make. And I got a doctor's appointment like a couple weeks later to start hormone therapy. So, yeah, it's, it was just like a rush. It's like a waterfall that kind of happened all at once. Perhaps like filling into your identity as a cyclist or a runner, coming out as her true identity as a female took time, work and practice. Grace is a planner. She made a stepwise plan of how she would come out to her friends and family as she underwent hormone therapy and learning how to present in public as female. Grace's first step was to come out to her best friend from college, Sarah. And eventually she came out to her mother. I just like kind of called her, FaceTimed her, and I was sitting in my living room again. Everything kind of happened in the living room and told her, you know, what the situation was and what I was planning to do and what this meant for me. And I remember her response was, wait, so you want to wear women's clothing at work? <laughs> And I was like, like, yeah, that's part of it, I guess. But, like, you're missing the whole picture, you know? You know, she was, like, crying and really worried about me and, and what this meant. Like, are you sure? Is this something you want to go through? And that was definitely a painful experience, you know, to not get that, like, positive reaction right off the bat. But it took some time for us to come to a common understanding of why she reacted in that way. And what she explained was that in that moment, she realized that if I was going to go down this path, like, life was going to be a lot more difficult for me than how it would have been otherwise if I wasn't dealing with this. And as a parent, that weighed really heavy on her and was hard. And, you know, she was starting from a place of not knowing a lot about trans issues or queer issues and having to educate and learn the terminology and, and understand what all of this meant. I just kept making those steps. Like climbing a mountain, each step brought Grace closer to, well, a new obstacle. 
in that intermediary period, it's challenging, right? Because you have this idea of who you want to be in your head and you aren't that person in the beginning, right? Both like from a physical perspective and from a social perspective. And for me, like I'm a binary trans person, like I consider myself to be a woman, like I use she and they pronouns, but like primarily she, her. Other folks who are a little bit more fluid or, or gender dynamic, they might be more comfortable with those in-between phases. But for me, it was like, I don't want to go through this transition. I want to like, be on the other side of it right so and it's interesting it's like compressing five years of puberty into like three four months right like i have to learn how to present as a woman i have to like you have to train your voice you know your body is going through all these changes your mind is going through all these changes like it's quite a trip to like go through that at, at 20 years old and on top of it all like you still have to work you're a professional you have to like exist in society I remember the first time that I went out like presenting femme in public. I went with my friend Sarah, who was one of the earliest people I came out to, to um, a burlesque show that was held at a local venue. And, you know, I dressed as myself in that, that environment and like nobody bats an eye in San Francisco. And I know that now being involved in the queer community for so many years. But back then I was terrified. You know, I thought everybody was going to think I was a freak or there was something wrong with me. And, you know, those really trial by fire experiences helped me become more comfortable with that presentation and the practice helped and it was tough but it got to a point I remember in October of the year where I did come out it was right after Trump announced the ban on military participation for transgender Americans so he like prevented us from uh, serving in the military and I was just so riled up and so mad about that that I decided you know this is my opportunity to take a little bit of power back and I came out publicly and started going full-time. Taking that monumental step to presenting full-time as female did not solve all of Grace's problems. In fact, in some ways it created more problems. She often encountered people who disrespected her gender identity, which tested her confidence and dialed up her anxiety. Grace was at a low until rugby called. I was at a tech conference here in the city called Lesbians Who Tech, which is, as the name suggests, a conference for lesbians and queer people in technology. And it was the after party. So the end of three days, I went to the local lesbian bar, Jolene's, and I was just sitting there, you know, drinking a beer with some friends of mine from the conference. And I remember locking eyes with this woman across the bar. You know, she had a denim jacket on, this like undercut, really cool looking person. And she like waltzed over to me with a beer and sat down in front of me and introduced herself. She said, I'm Indigo Hansen. Do you want to play rugby? And I was like, wait a second, like what? I don't understand this. And, you know, I, I sort of explained the situation to her. I was like, that sounds really cool. I've never played rugby in my life. I'm transgender, so sorry, I can't play on your women's rugby team. And she's like, we don't care. It's completely open. You know, if you're willing to play, we're just looking for body. Grace was shocked. You know, one of those things that I thought I was giving up or letting go when I decided to transition was my involvement in at least gender-segregated team sports. Like, I didn't think that that was something that I could participate in. And that's because of just the rhetoric in the media and, and how people talk about trans people in sports. I just thought it was, it was over for me. Grace was flattered by Indigo's invitation. But to Grace, who's only 5'7", rugby sounded scary. Yet, Grace was intrigued, and Indigo was persuasive. I made the decision, like, I'll at least come out and try this thing. So later that week, there was a practice, and I remember showing up, like, totally nervous to the nines about how I would be perceived and accepted and what this would look like. 
And, you know, wholeheartedly the team just embraced me and sort of brought me into the fold. You know, the coaches taught me the basics of the game. I participated in drills. You know, there was no difference from me participating in a different sport as a male identified person. And it's kind of hard to put into words how important that experience was for me and what it meant to be a part of a space that was gender affirming and also, you know, was something I loved to do and I got to learn a new sport and all of that. So it was super serendipitous that it happened. But I think it was a really important turning point in my transition where before this point, I was like still very anxious, still very insecure. I would struggle to like ride the subway without feelings of anxiety or go to the grocery store because I'd be worried somebody would, as we call it, like clock me as a trans person or make some comment that was offhand or like misgender me. Whereas post rugby, I felt this like community of people who were accepting of me for who I was. And I was able to go out there and just be myself and express myself and not have that fear that was holding me back for so long. So, of all the people sitting in the bar that evening, why had Indigo approached Grace? No, it was not because Indigo thought Grace looked like she'd be good at rugby. Well, after the fact, she said she thought I was cute and I had a really bold red lip going that day, so that's really why she came over to me. Uh, That's what a lot of our recruiting looks like in rugby, to be perfectly honest. Like, it's a very gay sport. Indigo and I, later on, you know, this past season, we were co-rookie and recruitment coordinators. So, like, our game would be, like, we'd go to the lesbian bar and we'd basically just, like, hit on people by inviting them out to our our rugby practices. You know, you do the same thing. We'd have, like, Tinder profiles set up where we'd be just, like, matching with lesbians and, like, inviting them to come to rugby. It's hilarious. I could do an entire episode just on that. But, yeah, I... I don't think anything in particular stood out to me in terms of, like, my athleticism or my physique or anything like that. She just thought I was cute. Grace attended her first practice on a Wednesday. It was the very first time she had ever touched a rugby ball. On that Saturday, she kitted up for her first match. Grace thought she might get away with just cheering from the sidelines. But the team needed bodies to fill positions. It's like you're going into a full contact situation. One of the wingers took like an injury, her nose was broken and she like had to come out. She gets like punched in the face and like her nose is bleeding and she comes off and my coach is like, okay, you're going in. I'm like, what do I do? She's like, if you can get the ball, run with it. If not, hit someone. And I'm like, oh my God, this is terrifying. So, you know, I played for like 20 minutes. I was super lucky in that first game. There was an errant bounce off of the opposing team's kick on my wing and I actually caught it and I ran to the end zone and scored a try in my first game. A try is the equivalent of scoring a touchdown in American football. So that was like unbelievable. I literally like I got into the end zone and I didn't know you had to put the ball down on the ground to like call it. So my entire team is like screaming at me as the other team's like rushing me to like put the ball down and score this try. But, you know, I remember I remember like being in the locker room after that and like feeling just like euphoria. Like I was in this space and people were like affirming me as a woman. And, you know, it was just it's like hard to put into words. It was incredible. And I just never looked back from that. As a Division Two team in the U.S., Gate mostly plays against other teams in Northern California. If they do really well, they have a chance to qualify for regionals and then nationals and compete against teams from around the country. But for Grace, winning, or even just being good at the sport, is rather irrelevant. 
Rugby, I think, is for me, honestly, one of the best sports I've played because it combines like four things I love. There's the team element, there's passing and catching, there's a ton of running, and there's contact, which I like actually liked from hockey and, and football. Um, I'm kind of like a few screws loose in that way. But I think more importantly, it was about the acceptance, you know, into a space where it's gender segregated, even though women's rugby is pretty gender expansive. Like there's a lot of non-binary folks and folks at different stages of transition, which I love as well. But I think most importantly, beyond just like feeling welcome, feeling supported, feeling protected, being in rugby allowed me to really calibrate my identity as a woman where, and this is like pretty typical for trans women, like in the beginning days of your transition, you have this like feeling or this like call to present like hyper femininely or you know really like exaggerate yourself because you're seeking cues from the social world that you're being accepted for who you are so you're like putting everything you've got on the table and it's like pretty exhausting to do that in the modern world you know and for me like I'm definitely more of like a tomboy type person it makes sense like my mother was the same way my sister you know sports player her whole life like same sort of thing and it wasn't until I got into rugby where I realized like, oh, you know, all of my friends are lesbians and, you know, they don't care how they present. They're just people and, you know, they're women second. And it's not this like hyper feminized thing that you have to do. And it gave me permission to just like be more comfortable with the person I actually was inside. So that to me was like a really beautiful gift that the game gave me and that community really taught me. Like when she was a kid, sport continued to serve as a stabilizing force in Grace's life. I think really importantly as well, it was an inroad for me into the queer community. So, you know, I came out and like, I didn't have that community of support or that community of acceptance, even living in San Francisco, like I just wasn't tapped into those spaces because I had been living my life as a heterosexual cisgender man. And then I joined this rugby team and everybody's queer in some way, right? And we start going out to queer bars and we go to Pride together and I get keyed into this like really vibrant, welcoming, larger community of queer folks. And it does nothing but just compound that feeling of confidence and that feeling of inclusion and that feeling of authenticity. Gates' embracement of Grace and who she is was not a fluke. Rugby as a sport for all is baked into the sport's very DNA. In fact, rugby's motto is rugby for all. This ethos is embedded into World Rugby's playing charter, bylaws, and regulations. The charter states, quote, the laws provide players of different physiques, skills, genders, and ages with the opportunity to participate at their levels of ability in a controlled, competitive, and enjoyable environment, end quote. And Bylaw 3 says that rugby aims, quote, to prevent discrimination of any kind against a country, private person, or groups of people on account of ethnic origin, gender, language, religion, politics, or any other reason. For the past 20 years, World Rugby has adopted the IOC guidelines, which allow trans women to compete if they keep their testosterone levels below a certain threshold for a year. This policy is pretty similar across a lot of sports, as we saw in ultra running with Grace Fisher. In fact, World Rugby just revised its policy in 2019 to match updated IOC guidelines, setting the maximum testosterone level at five nanomoles per liter. For reference, the normal healthy range for males is anywhere from 9.2 to 31.8 nanomoles per liter. It's about 10 times lower in females, 
So that's about 0.3 to 2.4 nanomoles per liter. Only seven months after updating its policy in 2019 to remain at the forefront of gender inclusivity, World Rugby reversed course. It decided to re-examine its trans policy once again. Alarm bells went off throughout the sport. If like seven months prior they had already revised their guidelines, why were they going through this process again? You know, and we started to think like, is there some sort of political impetus for this? Is this coming from a different place rather than actual concern for the science? After nine months of review, World Rugby officially became the first international sports federation to ban transgender women from competing on the global level. World Rugby only governs a sport at this top echelon. Individual countries can decide whether to let transgender women compete in domestic competitions. This means that World Rugby's ban doesn't directly impact Grace. In fact, the policy doesn't impact any trans ruggers. As of now, no trans ruggers have ever competed on the global level. But that's beside the point. World Rugby's decision creates a cement ceiling on the sport. It also sets the tone of who is welcome and who is not. I'm worried that folks are just going to look to this as an easy example that they can duplicate and put in a policy that's going to ban trans women from other sports as well. World Rugby claims the ban is based on science. As a contact sport with at least one injury per match on average, World Rugby says that, quote, safety and fairness cannot presently be assured for women competing against trans women in contact rugby, end quote. This conclusion comes from a thin, weak layer of scientific evidence. The study that World Rugby based their uh, decision on was an isolated one based out of a, a university in Sweden. They studied 11 non-athletic trans women. They had no control group of cis women. Instead, they compared the trans women to a group of trans men who were early in their transition, using them as a baseline. It's a mess across the board. They compared the sort of bellwether they used was they looked at the density of the quadricep muscle over the course of a 12-month period. And they said because there wasn't a significant enough reduction in the density of that muscle over the course of 12 months of HRT, the trans women effectively kept all of the like athletic advantages that they had as men beforehand. HRT stands for hormone replacement therapy. It's worth pausing on the methodology of this study for a second. The group under examination, that is trans women, were not compared to cis women. Instead, they were compared to trans men. Yet, in the results, the researchers acted like they had indeed compared trans women to cis women. That's like saying you want to see how similar apples and oranges are, but instead of actually comparing apples and oranges, you compare apples to pears and say the results tell you how apples differ from oranges. In addition, the sample size of 11 people is far too small to be statistically significant. And even if the results were significant, they would be meaningless. The study was supposed to be about athletics, yet none of the participants were even athletes. Joanna Harper, a trans athlete researcher at Loughborough University in England, notes that if you examine the data from the Swedish study, the trans women, before they started hormone replacement therapy, had substantially less strength and muscularity compared to cisgender males. Harper notes this is because trans women are far more likely to undernourish themselves to fit a certain physique than to be throwing weights around at the gym. Clearly, there is some sort of uh, other 
motive behind this that was uh, not just scientifically motivated. And to top it all off, the paper that was actually used in World Rugby's decision was a review paper authored by one of the leading scientists on that study and another openly transphobic scientist who doesn't have a connection to sports science based in the UK. And that review paper, which included the underlying paper I just described, was not peer reviewed at the time that World Rugby made their decisions. So like across the board from a scientific perspective, tons of red flags. World Rugby claims that if it doesn't address the issue of safety, the sport will die. Those against the ban say the ban is a solution in search of a problem. I think at the end of the day, World Rugby is trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. You have to keep in mind that, you know, rugby players, like rugby has been an open sport to trans individuals for almost 20 years. Like we adopted the IOC guidelines, you know, way, way back in in early 2000s, right? And for 20 years, we've never had somebody get to the highest level of the sport who's transgender. You know, why are we building a policy now to like prevent those folks from participating if there's not an issue and they're not causing the harm that this policy is set out to potentially prevent? And I have a lot of pretty well-researched hypotheses as to why this ban came about and why it was discussed at World Rugby, and all of them lead to a political decision or something that's more moved by like the place we are culturally, specifically in the UK where World Rugby is situated right now, and you know fear-mongering and, and again, like preemptive action for something that's, that's not really an issue. As much as we may try, it's impossible to divorce fact from belief. A belief that girls are too fragile to play a contact sport like hockey led to the invention of ringette. A belief that women are too frail to run long distances prevented them from being allowed to run marathons until 1972. Here, we're seeing the belief that trans women are too strong to play rugby against cis women. But it runs deeper than that. Human nature seems to be ingrained with a fear of the other, which ultimately is just a fear of the unknown. Societally, there's like a a quite a big moral panic going on right now around transgender rights and transgender inclusion in the UK, even more so than what we we face in the, the US, you know, like things aren't fantastic in the US compared to other countries like Canada, you know, Australia, that sort of thing. But in the UK, it's it's bad right now. Like the conservative government is really not affirming transgender rights. We've seen like a 400% increase in anti-transgender hate crimes in the UK over the last five years. And rugby is, you know, at the end of the day, a very British sport. World Rugby's headquarters is in the UK. A lot of, you know, the decision makers are folks from that background. And, you know, there are a lot of organizations in the UK right now who us in the trans community describe as turf organizations, trans exclusionary radical feminists who are basically working to like push back against transgender people having full rights in society. And one of the avenues they're working to do that on is uh, in sport and using sport more as a bludgeon for this rather than something that they actually care about. And that's where a lot of, I think, the impetus for World Rugby to examine these issues came from and, and where the ball sort of started rolling. We tend to think of institutions like science and sport as objective keepers of truth. Yet ultimately, these institutions are controlled by people with limitations and biases, just like you and me. In sports, I think we rely on biological essentialism to make a lot of decisions where we try and look for very cut and dry, neat cutoff points, you know, weight classes or gender or whatever 
Biology doesn't work that way. It's a lot more complicated. And testosterone is just a single indicator of athletic performance. Finding a way to safely and inclusively affirm transgender rights in sport illuminates one of the underlying issues with sport itself. I understand in a way where the concern comes from, even though it's misplaced. I think categorization in sport is important for a lot of the reasons that opponents to trans inclusion claim to be about, like fairness and safety and like those sorts of things. I just think where the lines are drawn are often influenced by ideological perspectives as opposed to actual science and an actual understanding of, of risk and, and fairness. Um, so for me, it's complicated. Uh, would I love to see the gender binary totally dismantled and people free to like live however they want without judgment and prejudice? Absolutely. Do I get a lot of um, social affirmation from playing in women's sports? Absolutely as well. So it's hard to sort of separate those two things. I live within the society I live within. As humans, we just try to understand things in the simplest terms, but some things are just, they don't work that way. You know, you have to be able to look at the full picture and understand the complexity of the human experience to really situate these sorts of topics in, in the right place. Sport tries to fit humans into these neat boxes. Age, gender, good to go. But age and gender do not encompass the mess that it means to be human. We're indoctrinated under this assumption that people are born biologically male or biologically female. This categorization is reductionistic and honestly sometimes dangerous. The scientist Joanna Harper says it's pretty much universally accepted within biology circles that sexual biology is complex. And many people, like Harper, believe that gender identity is also biologically based. If this is true, then trans women were never 100% biologically male. By equating trans women pre-transition to cisgender men, World Rugby ignores the fact that trans women are women. Not the same as cis women, but trans women are definitely not men. Furthermore, the top female rugby players themselves possess biological traits that help them excel at the sport. Many do not fit this demure feminine trope that world rugby seems to cling on to for women at large. Like, science just historically has been weaponized to marginalize people. Like, it's, it's a known fact that that's the case, right? And, and we've seen that for decades and decades and decades. And I think it's important to be able to read on both sides of the issues and really dig into things and look at first principles. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to solve that issue, right? Like, you can look at a study seven different ways and interpret it through this lens and that lens and tell a different story from the same set of data. And that's always been the issue in science. Like, how do you take objective reality and translate it into subjective understanding through, you know, human communication. But it's unfortunate when it's used to, like, hold people back or put people down or, or separate and exclude as opposed to being used for inclusion and for, for furthering social good. As much as the ruling is about actually controlling the game, it's equally about what it signals. All of the conversation around world rugby's ban, you know, even if you're never going to play elite level rugby, if you're a young trans girl who wants to get into the sport and you see the organization that governs it banning you from competing at the highest level, you know, how are you going to feel? Are you going to want to be a part of that sport? Are you going to feel welcome on that team? You know, what is this going to do for team dynamics? Like, 
in the future, maybe in a place not as welcoming as San Francisco, would this influence a women's team's acceptance of a transgender player, knowing that the governing organization sees them as like biological men or, or people who aren't allowed to play? I talk about this in the, the broader context of LGBTQ rights, and you can see this like very clear timeline where you know 10, 15 years ago, the fight was about marriage equality. Can gay and lesbian and bisexual people marry, right? Queer rights won that battle, and the marriage conversation is now moot, right? And then it moved on to trans individuals. They got put in the spotlight. Should they be allowed to share the same bathrooms, the same locker rooms, go to the same schools? You know, that went on for five, six years, these horrific bills that were passed here in the U.S. in these conversations. Effectively, that conversation has moved on in favor of more acceptance and more rights for trans people. And now we're onto sport. Do these people who are, you know, proponents for exclusion actually care about protecting women's sports? I don't believe so. If they were people who actually cared about that, they would focus on, you know, rampant sexual abuse and harassment in women's sports, lack of funding, lack of safety, you know, the media representation, actual issues affecting women's sports. What they really care about is ensuring trans people don't have equal rights and more largely queer people don't have equal rights in society. And I believe at the end of the day, it's always ideologically and politically driven. When is the last time that World Rugby made a declaration about women's player welfare? Like, when, when did they look at the injury rates between men's and women's rugby at the community level and see that women's rugby has a significantly higher injury rate because of the lack of funding and the lack of support staff and the lack of coaching? You know, these aren't studies that they're undertaking. They don't actually care about protecting women's sports. They care about excluding trans people from participating in the sport, and I think it's a really important distinction to make. We could do an entire episode on the actual issues within women's rugby. But right now, world rugby's ban of trans women from the top level of the sport directly impacts lives. For Grace, the ban means her sanctuary has vanished. The one place where she felt like she could be herself, the one place that instilled her with confidence, was ripped out from under her feet by a group of men sitting in a boardroom 5,000 miles away. Think about that for a minute. Imagine if every time you laced up your shoes to go for a run or pumped up your tires to go for a ride, you were heading straight into an environment that you know didn't want you to be there. One of the beautiful things when I was playing rugby and this wasn't an issue was I got to forget about the fact that I'm trans. You know, I get to forget about all of the baggage and the shit that you have to carry all the time as that lived experience and that identity in daily life for 90 minutes where I just run my heart out on the pitch. Am I going to be thinking about that now when I go back to rugby? Or am I going to be thinking, what if somebody on the opposite team has a problem with me? What if somebody makes a complaint? Do I actually belong here? You know, Do I actually have athletic advantages? Am I a danger to my teammates? Just as Grace bravely dove onto the pitch at her first match, she once again rose to the challenge. I see that sitting here in San Francisco, and I start catastrophizing about never being able to play rugby again, never being able to participate in this community that's so supportive to me. And I sort of panic, and I think, what can I do to like raise the alarm here to get people involved? Grace started a petition, Let Trans Women Play. It has collected over 18,000 signatures so far. I'm gonna fight and I'm gonna make sure that the sport remains open to people like me so that, you know, somebody who's coming up through the ranks or somebody who's younger than I am or somebody who gets that invitation to come out to practice is going to continue to feel welcome and it's gonna to continue to be an affirming space for them. 
Grace's activism illuminates another intriguing aspect about this debacle. The thing that is so hilarious to me is like world rugby, whose leadership is mainly, you know, older white cis men, are so disconnected from the women's game that they don't realize how overwhelmingly queer women's rugby is. And like people have been coming out of the woodwork like crazy for us, you know, saying like, this is not what we believe in. I've played against trans women for decades and had no issue. Like, what are you talking about? A lot of the organizing that's been happening behind the scenes has been led by cisgender players. And I've connected with amazing international athletes, cis women from around the world who care about this issue and are willing to speak up and like fight against it. So for me, that makes me feel like I'm not alone in this battle. And it reminds me that there are people out there who care. Backed by overwhelming support within the rugby community, Grace continues to press forward to affirm trans rights within the sport. I think our next steps um, are going to strategize about how to continue to put world rugby in a place of pressure to like reconsider this. For example, one of the outs that they left in their guidelines is they said they're willing to fund any new research into this area if somebody proposes a research study. We know that about a month ago, Joanna Harper put in a proposal to request funding for research into trans athletes who play rugby, and she's heard nothing back from world rugby since then. If this continues to be the law of the land for rugby, the 2021 Rugby World Cup in New Zealand will be the first openly transphobic international sporting event in the world. The ninth Women's World Cup is scheduled for Auckland and Whangarei, New Zealand, in October 2021. The presenting sponsor is the investment banking company HSBC. And we're going to, you know, damn well make sure that the sponsors of that event know that, that the general public know that that's the case and we're not going to be quiet about it. You know, we're talking about going to HSBC and making them aware of the fact that, you know, as the largest sponsor of Rugby Sevens in the world, World Rugby is now an organization that doesn't support inclusion and is directly in contravention of their inclusion policy as a corporation. So there are avenues where we can continue to advocate and put pressure on World Rugby. Ultimately, I would love for them to just reverse the ban and continue to stick with the IOC guidelines. At a minimum, as long as, you know, national unions around the world keep the game open, I'm happy that people still have an avenue to play. But, you know, I don't want to stop until we have full inclusion for everybody. We're going to continue to remind World Rugby that their priorities are misaligned here and that there are more pressing problems they could be focused on. While Grace wishes we were focusing on actual issues within rugby, Bringing trans rights to the forefront in sport does have some silver linings. I think if it wasn't for, uh, you know, this previous administration's targeting of trans individuals, I think the conversation about trans rights wouldn't be so front and center, for better or for worse. But I think a lot of people are now being exposed to transgender issues and trans individuals. And, you know, I think that representation, especially for cis people who might not know a trans person, is so important for normalizing our existence. There's this caricature that I think people have in their heads, cis people who have never met a trans woman, where they're this like 290 pound man in a dress with these like massive broad shoulders and you know like this hulking figure who's just preying on people in the locker rooms and the bathrooms and like that's just overwhelmingly not the case right you know myself I'm like five foot seven 145 pounds like I don't I'm not the fastest person on my rugby team I'm not the strongest person you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between me and a cis person out in public and that's the real lived experience of trans people. So um, I think it's important that, that we are a part of the conversation, the zeitgeist, and people are being exposed to, to trans folks more often. 
this is a chance for us to critically reflect on the ultimate purpose of sport. And it's a chance to use sport to coax society forward towards affirming human rights and making the world a more inclusive and supportive place. You know, one of the things I love about humankind is that we've decided that participation in sport is a human right. And I think collectively we want to ensure that that is a human right, not just a right for some humans. So, um, you know, I think if anything, these sorts of conversations push us to think deeply about these issues, to consider, you know, the lived experience of different people, to become more empathic and more open to that sort of understanding. And I don't think that in any way could be harmful to the world. It can only make the world a better, more welcoming place. So, you know, I hope that sport continues to ask these difficult questions and do this, you know, in intensive navel gazing so we can move to a, a better better place in the future. I think at the end of the day, inclusion usually wins out. So um, I appreciate you guys covering this. It's really important that, that we can have this conversation. Despite the message that World Rugby is sending overseas, Grace remains staunch in her belief that at its core, rugby remains a sport for all. One of the things that makes rugby the, the best sport I've ever played is that there is a place for every type of person on a rugby pitch. You know, you can have multiple feet of height and like dozens of pounds of difference in weight between your scrum half and your prop, you know? And the fact that the sport is designed so that every body shape, every body type, every person, people of different ages, people of different genders can find a place on the pitch, play a role and exceed is what makes the sport so beautiful. So so it, it's almost laughable that a policy like this is in place and, you know, it's a real unfortunate blemish on an otherwise fantastically inclusive sport and institution that I'm just proud to be a part of. On all fronts, like I highly recommend any trans person early in their journey, go find a, a sport like rugby, join it, you know, it'll change your life. Outspoken is a Thereabouts production. Produced and edited by Abigail Levine and Angus Morton. Sound design and mix by Ben Cornell. Executive producers Isaac Carson and Angus Morton. Music by the Enigmatic Builders T. It's truly a team effort. If you've enjoyed this episode, actually also if you did not enjoy this episode yet somehow are still listening, please throw us a review on iTunes. You can also get in touch with us on Instagram at A-P-L-E-V-E-N-E for me, Abby at that is Gus for Gus or at here or thereabouts. Thank you so much for listening. Reporting from the hinterlands of New Hampshire. 